Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Andy Gill. Andy is a web application penetration tester and a researcher and blogger, and I gather also a martial artist, and I'm going to be asking him a little bit about that. Um, you can read Andy's blog at blog.zsec.uk and check out his website at zephyr.fish, that's Z-E-P-H-R dot fish, and you can follow him on Twitter at zephyrfish with the same kind of spelling. Um, Andy is the author of the LeanPub book, Breaking into Information Security, uh, Learning the Ropes 101. His book is meant to teach people about the information technology security industry and uh, ethical hacking um, and how to start a, w- a career in web application penetration, te- penetration testing and seeking bug bounties, um, something that's an increasingly important part of our general day-to-day activity with software eating the world. Um, and it's something that we could actually all benefit from understanding better, and I would definitely recommend it to anyone who's interested in getting to know a little bit about this area. In this interview, we're going to talk about Andy's professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub. So thank you, Andy, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about how you first became interested in, you know, computers and software and eventually the security aspect of things. And from what I gather, your interest um, began pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing hacking, as it were. Not the term hacking's chucked about a lot, but I've been doing taking things apart, seeing how they work, and breaking things since I was about five or six. But I actually got into computers when I was in my kind of early teens, so about what twelve, thirteen. Uh, started playing about with software, doing bits and pieces, uh, which transitioned into school. Got in a bit of trouble doing a bit of breaking things, which obviously don't advocate for now, but uh, you, you make mistakes when you're younger. Uh, so got, got in a bit of trouble. My, my uh, guidance teacher suggested that I go and study at, at uni, uh, which I eventually got to, uh, having taken the longer route round. The, the traditional route in the UK is that you get your, your school, like, like uh, secondary school qualifications or high school in America, uh, you then go to university and, and get your degree and boom, that's it. However, I didn't take the, that route. I, I uh, failed basically high school or, well, yeah, failed high school, got two two certifications, ended up going to college, which is like a kind of transition between high school and university. Um, got did, did a year there, went to university, finally got a degree, uh, landed on my feet and uh, met some really interesting people along the way. And as a result of that, got into the industry. So it's it's bumpy road, but I got there eventually. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've, that uh, makes me very curious about a few things. Um, uh, one of the things I'd like to ask is, um, uh, and it's one of the themes of this podcast is is what you studied at university because I would I find about half of people who end up in you know software generally uh, did and half did not study computer science at university. I studied a very specialist degree. My degree was titled Digital Security, Forensics and Ethical Hacking. So it was very uh, focused surrounding the kind of security aspect of uh, information technology. But the, the primary primary focus of it was on forensics with a little bit of ethical hacking. And it was the ethical hacking that piqued my interest. And that's that's what uh, drove me to my career that I'm in right now. And can you um, can you explain perhaps to someone who might not understand what the difference is between uh, sort of unethical hacking and ethical hacking? The main difference between ethical hacking and illegal hacking, as it were, is permission. 
in my profession, we are given, we as professionals are given a contract from a client saying, we give you permission to hack website X or IP address X. Uh, an illegal, well, illegal, a bad guy is not going to have permission to do that. So they're going to just go and attack whatever they feel like with no written confirmation from whoever they're attacking, uh, no permission to go go off, off rails and take things down, for example. Uh, whereas in, in the professional aspect of things, you're, you're given everything's written by the book. You're given a scope. You're, you're usually uh, in a pen test. You'll be given like we want you to attack this application. It's located here. You can only go to this domain. If you go outside of the scope, then you're, we're not covered from a liability perspective. So that's the main difference between ethical hacking and bad hacking, I suppose you would call it. And how do you get that permission? How do you get the permission? Uh, well, there's there's a lot there's a large variety of different areas of pen testing, so that can fall under bug bounty hunting, which is you go through a platform, they have a scope that's outlined, and you you as long as you stick in that scope, you're usually safe. Or if it's the professional aspect of things, you have a client that comes to you, pretty much with a contract like you would in any other job. So if you're a plumber uh, plumbing in a boiler, you'd have a contract to deliver the job in X amount of days. It's the same sort of terms and conditions in pen testing. You have five days. Like For example, I'm, th- this week in my profession, I'm looking at an application and I've got 11 days to see how much I can find in this application. And at the end of those 11 days, I'll give the client a report saying I found X, Y, and Z. This is how you patch it. This is how it impacts your business. And this is why you might want to patch it. So, for example, I found something today that allows a rogue attacker to email content to the website. And the website will run that code. And as a result, uh, for me, enable me to execute arbitrary commands on the server, which is a bad thing because being able to email things and the website running them is not not great. Yeah, that sounds um that sounds pretty bad. Um, uh, and you do the um, you you have a job a day job as I understand it as a pen tester penetration tester for yeah. an organization, and then you have uh, on the side is where you do the bug bounty uh, kind of yeah bug bounty hunting is like a sort of hobby more than it's a job. So like the my day job I I break shit and then my I don't know if I like to swear in this podcast, but I, I break I break yeah. stuff. I break I break shit on a on a daily basis, either through my job or as my hobby, uh, both digitally and physically with martial arts. <laughs> so, the 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 bug bounty aspect of things is mainly a hobby. It's, for some people, it's a full time job, but for me, I just find it as a kind of a playground, as it were. I, I, there's usually a lot wider scope in a bug bounty versus pen testing, so there's a lot more fun things to play on, and often you see systems that you wouldn't usually see. Yeah, I have a, a, a sort of uh, very uh, direct question about the martial arts in just a second. But um, before we get there, you mentioned playgrounds and you mentioned earlier some youthful indiscretions. Um, <laughs> do you want to uh, perhaps talk a little bit about that without necessarily getting specific? Perhaps, you know, because it's very easy to get curious and to start poking around. And, you know, breaking stuff can be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, my my kind of youthful experience uh, in my in high school, I found well, I found several flaws in the, the school computing system that allowed me one that allowed me to bypass the restrictions that were in place. So in school, they were very heavy on blocking things like Facebook and YouTube and game sites, uh, and I found ways to bypass that to enable me to 
listen to music and play games in, in IT, which usually you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing. You should be learning. But as kid, kids are curious. Kid, kids want to play. So that was that was a kind of the, uh, slightly less damaging than other things that I did at school. Uh, another example that I can probably speak about is that round about when I was 14 or 15, I found a way to change the school administrator's password and unlock everything. Oh my! So that was that, that got me in quite a bit of trouble, uh, but uh, it was fun at the time. So. <laughs> yeah, that uh, reminds me. I spent a couple of years at uh, in high school at a boarding school, um, and. Um, one of there were various traditions that were passed down from you know a sort of senior to a junior, um, and one of those traditions was uh, an actual master key for all the physical all right. doors in the <laughs> institution, um, uh, and we made some use of that for pranks and such. Um, and I can, can see, imagine I can see how tempting <laughs> getting an administrator's password uh, might or or getting you know access to what they've got uh, can be. Um, Specifically on the subject of martial arts, I, I mean, I've uh, you know done a little bit of training myself, um, and so I you know I'd kind of like to ask you uh, a little bit about that in a second. But first, we actually uh, had another tester um, who uh, we've interviewed or who I interviewed for this podcast named David Greenlees, um, who has a book on LeanPub called "Software Testing as a Martial Art." All right. Okay. And he, um, as I think you point out in, maybe it's in your book or it's in your blog, you point out how, you know, in some, in some places testing is much more, um, compartmentalized and people become a specialist at a very specific type of testing as opposed to just general tester. And, um, I don't know if David is specifically, uh, in the security area. Um, but he draws a very explicit connection between, uh, you know, killing bugs and, fighting bugs and fighting people um do you do you feel that there's a connection between you know your martial arts the sort of spirit that drives you to martial arts training and yeah the, there is there is a direct correlation between martial arts and hacking as it were i, I run the local defcon chapter for glasgow and a couple of months ago i did a talk called jab cross hack which is in the name, it talks about the direct correlation between hunting for software bugs and fighting an opponent. The defense mechanisms that an opponent puts up is the same sort of defense mechanism that a computer puts up. And when you're fighting or sparring, you're always looking for that gap to get your punch in or to get a kick in or to score. And it's the same mindset that you apply to hacking. You're always looking for that hole to find something, to pop something, to get through the firewall or to... Uh, upload something you're not meant to upload it's it, it's exploiting vulnerabilities just as you would do in a ring on on a computer and you uh it, you train in karate is that correct yeah a training uh, well the, the the base of the club is in karate but we the the, the training we do is quite diverse so we, we we're, we're not special specialists but the, the base is karate but we do uh, like ground work like brazilian jiu-jitsu we do throws and judo wrestling a bit of everything uh, but my my core strength is stand-up uh, sparring so I'm a, I'm a tall guy my, my specialist is kicks and you've um you've competed in uh contact uh tournaments yeah I've, I've fought at full contact level uh which is it's sore but good fun yeah i'm curious about that i mean i um i did a bit of um competing in taekwondo back in the day it was a wtf taekwondo so you know it was um definitely contact 
um, you could kick. There were curious rules, though, and this is what I'm, I'm interested in asking you about. So, for example, in the Taekwondo that I did, which was the kind that was at the Olympics, um, you know... That's the one where they jump about and just keep the leg in the air and keep flicking about? Or... Well, basically, yeah, you're not allowed to uh, punch in the head, um, but you can kick someone in the head as hard as you want. Um, and, you know, no, nothing below the waist uh, were more or less the rules. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there are different variations in the rules of karate. There's what's called wushu karate, which is scoring karate, which is more like, I suppose, tag, where you're, it's quickest to score. You're aiming to get a punch or a kick, a punch or a kick, clean in and score. Uh, or there's the full contact side of things where it's similar to what you're talking about. You can't punch the head, but you can punch the body, you can punch the legs, you can knee to the body, you can kick the legs, you can kick the ribs, you can kick to the head. Uh, you can basically you can't punch the head more or, more or less everything else goes you just can't kick to the groin and knee to the groin and you can throw but you can't grab the the, the suits you can't grab the gi uh, you need to use uh, like technique uh, as opposed to and you also can't clinch like you would in my tie so you can't like grab somebody by the head and pull them in uh, it's all kind of open hand and are you wearing any padding when you're competing in that way uh, in in full contact in what's called Kyokushin karate, it's mm. bare knuckle fighting. But you have uh, well, in some competitions there's there's no pads at all apart from gum shield and groin guard. And uh, in others you'll have uh, shin and instep, but you won't. It's still bare knuckle, and you still have a gum shield for for safety reasons because you don't want to lose your teeth. <laughs> yeah, I only know a little bit about uh, Kyokushin. I'm not. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but um, that's some pretty tough stuff. Yeah, it's it's hard going. I mean, if if anyone's interested, if you look it up on YouTube, you can see some some of the fights that are on YouTube are they're brutal, but they they're they're enjoyable to watch. And um, bringing it back to um, you know testing and security and things like that, I I this is I'm recalling my you know first minute of my first fight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Things changed dramatically the moment the fight started. Um, you know, my heart, I mean, suddenly I realized, like, this guy's trying to kick me in the head as hard as he can, and I'm trying to do the same thing to him. Um, yeah. And, you know, that first minute lasted, you know, forever. Um, and I'm curious if in any of the work that you've done, you've ever been in, like, a time-constrained situation where you realize, like, you know, I've got to get this done really quickly before the system stops me. Is there anything analogous to that? There, there is in a sense. I mean, that when you're doing testing, you get slow days and you get quick days and you get tests that are long and tests that are short. But the, the tests that kind of where the adrenaline kicks in is if you're on like a three-day test, you've got three days to look at an application, you get to the end of day two, shit, you've not found anything. Now, from a client's perspective, that may, might be like, oh, yeah, we're secure, that's cool. But from a tester's perspective, you've got nothing to report or you've got very minimal findings to report. So the adrenaline starts kicking, you start to look at things and going, what am I missing? I've spent two days, I've spent 16 hours, 20 hours on this. What, why have I not found anything? So it, it, it's the same sort of mentality. It's not quite as uh, kind of high-stress adrenaline as, as it would be in a ring or, or on the mats because obviously on the mats, you've got somebody attacking you. So you're not... You're not um, you're not in the same sort of line of fire, but it is the same sort of high stress, high mentality. The adrenaline isn't the same though, because you, you don't have somebody trying to kick in the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
one of the uh, I think you mentioned uh, you know the the sort of pressure to report um, and um, one of the interesting things that you talk about on your blog and in your book is the um, importance of reporting properly and it's it's really interesting because you know from the sort of uh, someone who's not familiar with this area maybe someone who just sees you know movies with hackers and stuff like that um, the reporting side of it. Uh, is something that I think even people who do engage in the work are sometimes not very familiar with the importance of. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because I found your emphasis on that to be uh, unique. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I know I'm one of the rare pen testers that thoroughly enjoy reporting. A lot a lot of people see a report as, shit, I've got to do a report. I've got the last day of the test. I've got to give this to the client. But from my perspective, well, actually, from anyone's perspective, it should be that the report is the main product. The hacking is a byproduct of the report. The, the client pays you money for your findings, but if you've if you've hacked a cool website, say you've I don't know you've you found a way to get past the firewall, you're on the systems. That's cool, but how are you going to tell the client that? You can't just go, oh yeah, I'm in your system, fantastic. Client goes whoop to do. Like, what does that mean to me? How do I fix it? How do I reproduce it? And the emphasis on reporting in both my blog and and my book is is because it's more focused around what I've seen working in industry and also what I've seen on bug bounty platforms. People don't tend to pay too much attention to reporting as they do to finding really cool, super cool hacks. And being able to apply what you found in a more reproducible manner will make it easier for your client to understand what you found and if it's in a bug bounty situation and i've had it happen to me the client or the platform might see that as a benefit and end up paying you out more than they would normally for the report so if you if you've if you've demonstrated clearly how you found how you got to where you where you what you found uh, clear, clearly and concisely then it makes it easier for them to reproduce but also from a professional aspect it usually means that like companies will have more than more than one consultancy test them uh, it's for for best practice so they they'll have their app and it won't be at the same time so you won't be tested at the same time as a consultancy but maybe it'll get tested in january and then they're going live in i don't know june so they need to test it tested two or three times so they'll go to different consultancies and if your report out of all the consultancies if your report comes out being as clear as possible they're more likely to go come back to you for business, but they're more likely to understand and they're hopefully more likely to fix the issues because you'll get some people who will run scanners, output the scanner output and just chuck out a report. Now, the scanner output, it's clear on some issues, but on others, it makes no sense. Sometimes there's false positives. Being able to report that clear and concisely will improve the general output of, of um, your work. And what's a, what's a scanner? A scanner is a tool that is used for automatically finding uh, flaws in software. So it will chuck uh, lots of different probes, so like lots of different strings of text and uh, different uh, packets at a target to try and identify what different response comes back. So it might chuck like true into a false field and see if there's anything that comes back or false into a true field. So taking it as an example, say you're looking at like a commercial website where you're buying something. You're trying to buy a TV. TV costs a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds. If you if you if you chuck a scanner, that scanner might change the value from a thousand pounds to zero pounds. And if it comes back as true, then that would come up as a, that would be a fault. 
and the scanner would be like, well, I'm expecting this to come back as a thousand, but it's come back as zero. This might be a fault. Now, doing that manually would be fine, but imagine you're testing a thousand applications that have all got those different fields. For obvious reasons, you want to automate that because you're not going to do that all manually in two or three days. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the um, other interesting things that I found um, relatively unique about uh, your book and about your blog and the, the introduction that you give um, to this world um, is uh, the importance of networking um, and talking to people uh, to be a good penetration tester and I suppose bug bounty hunter. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, an easy joke these days, but given you know, the current occupant of the White House seems to think that <laughs> people who use computers are 400-pound men in their mom's basement. You know, not that there's anything remotely wrong with that, but, um, you know, you talk, you do talk about the importance of socializing and networking and actually how, like, you know, although one, one can have one's own personality and one's own life, um, that talking to other people is actually a really important part of the work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important for several reasons. I mean, human interaction is always, regardless of your profession, always going to help you. Because you, be, being social, it does does a couple of things. For for some people, some people just don't enjoy being social. But for a lot of people, it, it kind of raises your endorphins. It makes you happier. It makes you more kind of come out of yourself. But applying it to the kind of area of security and IT, the traditional aspect is that we are, tend to be quite introverts. We tend to be quite anti-social individuals, and we're that awkward person in the corner of the bar drinking a whiskey or drinking a drinking a beer. But making it more social and making it more open, if you if you talk to more people, you'll make more contacts. And if you make more contacts, it's about who you know in the industry, not necessarily what you know. So get so the 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 book is based around getting yourself into the industry. And the only way you're going to get into the industry, it might be cool that you've got lots of skills, but if you don't actually speak to people, who, who are you, how are you going to know if there's jobs? Or how are you going to know who's good to work for from word of mouth and, and other aspects of things? But from a, from an, from a general community perspective, uh, growing your social skills just generally helps you in life because you can go to conferences and happily speak to complete strangers. I mean, not not everyone's going to be a social butterfly, but it does help. I found it very helpful for myself uh, that I got into the industry from being social. So it's, it does help. Yeah, that's a that's a really good response. And I know from um, having interviewed uh, Peter Jaworski, um, who I believe you. Oh yeah, Pete, Pete, Pete's a lovely guy. He's he's good. Yeah, um, uh, he he um, in our interview he spoke. Uh, quite a bit about um, the importance of community and, and how, and gave the impression of, you know, a lot of support out there. Um, but I guess there was something that you sort of touched on a little while ago about, or just a short time ago, I guess, um, about um, how you know, the different consultancies can actually be set uh, to the same task as a matter of best practice. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the competitive aspect of things. I mean, do you, as a penetration tester, do you have, you know, because this is something that happens in martial arts as well, where like, you know, you have to have a community in order to teach and maintain tradition and things like that, but you do kind of keep a few tricks up your sleeve. Yeah, I mean, the the, the aspect, my, my personal opinion on it is that I think all knowledge should be open. I think that everyone should share their knowledge with the community because the only way to grow a community is to share 
Now, others don't necessarily have that opinion. I know people that I work with don't have that opinion. Well, some people don't have that opinion. Not not everyone, but some people believe that if I share my my secrets with everyone, then everyone's going to be better than me. But that's not just, that that's not true. Your your skill comes from not not only what you know, but how you communicate it. So that's where it comes back to reporting, the social aspect, the communication aspect, the writing aspect. If you can put that into report. If you can put that into communications back to a vendor, a client, or just anyone, it highlights you as being a skillful individual. Because you might have the most technical skills on the planet, but if you can't communicate that efficiently to the client, the client's never going to know. Or the client might not even care. They might not even care if you found a really cool vulnerability. If they can't reproduce it, if they can't fix it, what use is it to them? What are they paying you $2,000 a day for? Or what are they paying you $5,000 for bug X? If, if they can't if they can't fix it because what's to stop you reporting it on monday them going right cool we've, we've resolved this but your report isn't good enough so they haven't fixed it somebody goes on tuesday and reports it again and they found a different way of doing it if you've not effectively communicated how you found it then the, the client's out of pocket they're maybe not so happy so and if, if it's in a professional environment if they're not so happy they're less likely to go with you again so you're you're more likely to lose business it's um security is a really big topic um these days <laughs> um i don't suppose that's necessarily anything new um but just recently there was the wanna cry um scandal yeah. i suppose you could call it uh ransomware <laughs> um and I, as i understand and you can please correct me if i'm wrong but um basically what happened was it, i i gather it was the NSA uh, in the united states uh, found some exploits, didn't reveal them to the companies uh, that were affected, and then their, the NSA's information was uh, managed to get into the hands of these uh, bad actors. Um, and so the debate, there's this debate about whether or not government agencies should tell companies when they discover vulnerabilities. And what's your position on, on that? It's a bit of a controversial topic. I mean, the 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 idea that that governments are harvesting what are called zero days, so software that is previously unpatched. On one hand, it's it's they should tell the vendor, yeah, go for it. But on the other hand, this is kind of devil's advocate. They're they're hoarding them for a reason. Now, the the reason, the main reason they hoard these these zero days is to get the up on other nation states. So. If you take, I don't want to start World War Three, but if you take Russia and the U.S., for example, the U.S. is likely to have zero days in Russia's systems and Russia is likely to have zero days in the U.S. systems. So them finding intelligence without Trump telling them about it, but that's another topic, uh, they, um, they might find more uh, information about the next intelligence step. So if, if the U.S. have got secret agents in Russia, Russia might have zero days to find out who those people are and start to give them less information. So it's it's international nation state spy sort of stuff. I suppose it's a bit like James Bond if you think about it. But uh, dialing back to the original question, do I think it's right or wrong? I'm kind of in the middle. From a from a kind of ethical point of view, I think that nation states should tell the vendors. But from a kind of governments wanting one upping each other and preventing wars i think it's not ethical but to an extent sort of right 
but that that's just that's just me having, having never worked for government I, I don't know what the environment is like so i i can't comment on that really but yeah. i'm sort of in the middle I, there are for arguments and there are against arguments and a lot of people will say it's a bad thing a lot of people say it's a good thing but it's it's just people one-upping each other there's always going to be software bugs no code is 100 percent secure and never claim it never claim something is hack proof because it definitely is hackable yeah and as you're um as you're pointing out so well it's uh there are real fights um out there um and you know if you are on one side or another um you might want your side to have the tools that it needs um, I'm a bit. I wanted to ask a little bit um, more about if you could explain a little bit more about what a zero day is. Um, and I guess I have. Well, actually, yeah. If you could just explain a little bit about what that is. I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners know, but some probably don't. So a zero day or O day, depending depending on how you how you say it, is essentially a vulnerability in software that is been zero days since patched. So if I find a flaw in Windows 10 that allows me to run malicious software without the user knowing, so if I send you a link and you click on that link and that automatically runs a piece of malicious software, that would potentially be a zero day because Microsoft haven't patched it. You're, you have like no can defense against it. The, the other, there are lots of complex terms thrown about surrounding zero days, but the, the basics of it is it's, it's a flaw in software that's not been patched or is not known. So you could find the flaw today, hoard it for 10 years, and Microsoft or Linux or Red Hat or a software vendor would never know about it because you found it and you haven't reported it to them. That's not to say that somebody else hasn't found it either, but it, it's, it's basically a flaw that hasn't been patched or hasn't. Yeah, it hasn't been patched. Is the is the easy easy way to say it. And um, uh, I guess this is kind of getting a little bit in the in the weeds, but um, you know, do people lay traps? Is that a, I'm curious if that's a part of the security world. I mean, do you sometimes dangle out, you know, a, a something that is intended to look like a zero day to someone in order to catch them well sort of you get you get things in uh, kind of threat intelligence it's not my area of expertise but i do have colleagues that work in it where they will run something called a honeypot so they they will run a purposefully vulnerable piece of software or purposely un unsecured server excuse me on the internet that attackers will see as an opportune opportunists will see attack and possibly gain access to it and from the defender's perspective they'll be they'll be letting them run riot do whatever they want but the defender will be looking at how did they get in what are they using to get in is it a known technique that we've seen before and that's how kind of threat intelligence is built up uh, it's it's more more for analytics perspective uh, and kind of future proofing and patching it in zero days than it is for oh here here's a zero day go or, or here's something that might be a zero day i mean I, I have no doubt that that happens but i've I've yet to encounter it um and I think you mentioned that you know anything anything can be hacked or at least one should assume that anything can be hacked 
Um, yeah. What's your opinion about um, the Internet of Things? Oh, that's great fun. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, Internet of Things is like taking modern technology and dialing back to the 90s and going, we've built a really cool thing and we've called it smart. Oh, yeah, that security thing. Shit, we should probably put that in. They, 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 um, they'll, they'll develop a really cool thing. Well, we've developed a smart fridge. We can order your groceries, no bother. Then somebody comes along and goes, yeah, but how are you securing my car details or... How are you securing my milk? How how can how how do you know that that milk's going to my address and not to Bob Smith's address in California? Like, so the the, the security aspect of the Internet of Things is it's sort of an afterthought at the moment. However, the company I work for, uh, Pentest, are um, work, we're working with lots of different clients to try and change that mindset. So you're doing secure by design. So security should be in step one as opposed to step ten or step one instead of step four. Where you're you're designing your internet-enabled light bulb or internet-enabled something, internet-enabled dildo. I saw in the news recently. Who wants to do that? Weird people. Don't know. But you should build. You should be securing privacy data before you before anything really. Or secure. Basically, if you if you build something that's connected to the internet, think about what you're most worried about losing, and secure that first before you put any extra features in. So if if you've got an internet-enabled pen, for example, it's the first thing I thought of, the internet-enabled pen that sends your writing to a cloud provider. You want, to secure, you want to secure the path as to where that's going. You want to make sure what you're sending is secure. So you don't want to be sending your handwriting and clear text if you're writing out, I don't know, if you're writing out your Christmas list to Santa. You don't want, you don't want other people finding out what your Christmas list is. So you want to send that securely, package it up, um, encrypt it possibly from the first step before you make it a blue pen or you make it multicolored. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it um, you know it's 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 so complex. I mean, for example, the ri- the risks are so complex. Like for example, you can imagine someone if someone has say a smart fridge, you can imagine someone hacking it to make it you know become warm at night. And then cool, Actually, cool it back up so the person doesn't I, I, notice I just, that their milk's gone. You know, I've just thought of a, a, a really interesting. So, I, my, my one of my friends, there's there's a conference that, that ran this year in Scotland called Beast Highs Edinburgh, and uh, a friend of mine d- thought of a great a great talk talk topic, but time ran out for us to present it called the Internet of Death. Now, we were the idea was to take three or four household items and think of different ways in which you could hack them to essentially kill someone. Now, from a from a kind of security perspective, if you hack into like a fridge, you could overheat the, the cooling element and possibly blow up a house. Not not the not the best way to die, but hey, it happens. Uh, or you could take a the the one that we were looking at was um, like heating elements in kettles. If you could turn a kettle on and off several hundred times a second, the heating element's going to heat up and cause an explosion, possibly. So that, that's another way. The, another thing we looked at uh, was was actually smart dildos. Uh, you could, you could um, yeah, somebody could come to an end from that. Uh, <laughs> and the other one we looked at was uh, heating elements in boilers. So companies like Nest and uh, 
like other thermostats or there's smarts you can turn it on and off from your phone so you can make the house warm before you come home or you can cool it down if it's in summer so the idea was to to make it like super hot or super cold and then keep it super cold to well yeah yeah that's hypothermia that's really interesting i'm I'm not going to forget the internet of death um as an idea (laughs) um that would make a great blog post or even a book of its own. Um, I mean, I guess it partly just speaks to, uh, you know, the boundless creativity and imagination um, that one can put to uh, nefarious ends um, and how, you know, the, you know, facility that like speed of light communication networks give us now and the complexity of the tools that are, yeah. you know, at our fingertips, I mean, place few constraints, it seems. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that springs to mind, mind on, on the kind of topic of internet death is that, that, that part of my degree was in digital forensics. And the one thing they were talking about, which was going to be up and coming, was wearables. But when I did my degree, internet of things wasn't really a thing. I mean, obviously, wearables are internet of things devices, but the law enforcement will now be looking to people's fridges to see or people's doorbells to see when they were out of the house or what what, what they ordered so if if there's like a homicide investigation if somebody's if somebody's been robbed and killed in their in their house did they die from an allergic reaction did their fridge order like nuts are they allergic to nuts or did, did their um, lights were the lights on at the time or, or so it's it's it adds a whole new layer to kind of investigations of things as a whole new layer to kind of digital forensics you're no longer just looking at the 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 um, footprint on the internet you're also looking at the physical footprint of the house uh, it's sort of a bit of a tangent but it's, it's an interesting topic no that's really fascinating um it reminded me of um i believe it's a journalist in the united states who was attacked with a strobe lighting effect uh um, attachment to okay. a tweet. Um, and, you know, I can just imagine if someone has some internet enabled lights, the mischief that someone <laughs> can get up to. I mean, when you talk about, you know, starting and stopping a kettle a thousand times a second or something like that, um, yeah. you know, it really, uh, you know, sounds like people really ought to consider, um, the risks, especially if you're saying when, I mean, I, if I gather from your, your, your statement about, you know, like, like it was back in the nineties that people are basically appear to be behaving rather recklessly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the internet of things I, I would, I mean, two years ago, I'd probably count it as a fad, but it's now becoming a kind of reality of that everything is going to be internet enabled at some point or another, but it seems to be that everyone is trying to rush out their internet enabled device without any care or regard to security. I mean, the, the biggest the biggest kind of publicly known flaw with the Internet of Things was the Mirai malware. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, it was, I, I, I think it was Nation State. I can't, I can't remember. But basically, there was a, a malicious attacker who went after all Internet-enabled devices that had default usernames and passwords on the Internet. So the default username and password was like maybe admin admin or admin12345. And they infected these devices with a piece of malicious software that would add that device to a botnet, so a, a kind of a group, a group of machines that could be used to attack other machines. 
and they 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 collected like kettles, security cameras, anything that's really internet enabled, and used them to cause denials of service against applications, websites. There, there's a there's an account on Twitter that that tracks these. I mean, it's still still going on, but essentially that was the biggest publicized Internet of Things form of attack using internet-enabled devices to cause distributed denial of service attacks against, well, websites, things on the internet, really. And what was it called again? Mirai? Mirai. M-I-R-A-I, I I think it is. Okay. I'll uh, I'll do some checking after this interview to to, uh, find out for sure and put some links in the notes. Um, But yeah, I do remember remember hearing about that. Um, You know, uh, I guess they can say, you know, safety starts at home and you know everybody <laughs> listening please please use good passwords um yeah pa- password security well actually even better use past phrases so use use like the lyrics to a song or use the first letter if you i don't know the hills are alive with the sound of music use the first letter of each word as a password because it's random it's not a dictionary word but it's uh you you, you remember it uh, or take or take i always advise my grandparents and parents to have past phrases so think of lyrics or think think of phrases that you you've you've heard before and you can remember use that as a password instead of instead of password one never use password one one um oh why do you say that do you mean one password no uh, well that and also never oh, use I, the, I see the, what you mean literally p-a-s-s-w-o-r-d one yeah i mean don't don't use one password for everything as well i mean that that would be general advice uh have unique. I mean, the, the, the advice that I give to people is use a password manager. So use something like LastPass, or KeepSafe, or KeyPass. Oh, just, sorry. Just, yeah, the reason I was confused is I I have a password manager called One Password. One uh, Password, yeah, yeah. on on uh, macOS or yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, you know, excellent <laughs> advice. Um, uh, on the on the general topic as well. Um, you know, obviously one of the things that seems to be coming is um, uh, self-driving cars. And there have been articles in the media, obviously, about that. And there were a couple of guys who I think were featured on Wired who um, uh, managed to hack into a, an SUV, I think it was, while the journalist was driving it down the highway, which struck me as very reckless and dangerous. But um, I was wondering if you, what your thoughts are on that. I think from a technology perspective, self-driving cars is phenomenal. It's such a breakthrough. It's like amazing but from a security perspective it's not quite there yet not to say that it will never be there but it's i'd say it needs five five ten years more development of security but saying that just car security in general uh there's a massive community surrounding car hacking uh there's various books about car hacking that are out from old school technology like plugging into the port and the physical car through to new stuff but i say new stuff kind of moderately new like bluetooth hacking it's if you think about it a self-driving car somebody isn't actually going to think how is this secure they're going to be more concerned about is it is it going to drive me into a wall or how how is the artificial intelligence going to work is it going to learn that yes it was a left turn yesterday but now now the builders have dug that up and it's now a trench it's the it it's it still needs development i think it's a cool topic but i think the um the security surrounding it still, still, uh, it, it still needs work. And uh, what what can be done to secure it? It's not my area of expertise, so I'm not really sure. Uh, 
I think from a basic standpoint, I think securing the the main first of all securing the physical device, so the, securing the car, making sure there's no exposed ports. Don't put 3G in them. Don't put Wi-Fi hotspots in them. Taking things like the Nissan Leaf that was hacked last year, it had a Wi-Fi hotspot built into it. Um, why do you want a Wi-Fi hotspot in your car? You may ask. Nobody knows. It was just there. Um, you've got cars are now computers. So you, you want to secure a car like you would secure your computer. Put a password on it. Have authentication on top of your key. Have two-factor authentication. So if you're is it actually self-driving cars, two-factor authentication, if it isn't a thing, should definitely be a thing. So you have your key to your car, but you also, when you get into the car, you need to put in a PIN code or the car sends you a signal to your phone and to check that it's you. That, that, that would be different authentication methods to drive the car. But then I suppose you've got the complexities of different drivers for, for the cars and things. But I, I, would, I would hope to see multiple factor authentication for self-driving cars. That's really interesting. I've never quite thought of that before. I mean, personally, I'm a big advocate of it. I think the the most dangerous security threat in a car is the person driving it. Um, I bet uh, I'm also a petrol head as well. So I, I, having self driving cars, you don't have the same experience of cutting about, having having a good a good laugh, and having feel, feeling pedal to metal. But that's 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 my personal kind of loving loving of cars. But they. As you say, the, the biggest danger on the road is the person behind the, the wheel. As it as it is with a computer, the, the the biggest single point of failure is the human the human link in the chain. So it's, it's the we're just bad. We're just bad indiv- not individuals, you and I, but the human race full <laughs> of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you know, on just the general topic. I mean, in a profession like yours. Um, you know, there, it's a really, it's really interesting. I mean, there you are trying to find vulnerabilities because you know there are other people who have bad intentions who are also trying to find those vulnerabilities um, all the time. So there's this element of um, uh, urgency, I suppose, but also an awareness of the bad forces. Um, yeah, that I mean, really are out there. That dial into the human aspect of things. That the 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 one thing that bug bounties lack in comparison to penetration testing is the human aspect of things. The one area that is almost always out of scope is what's called social engineering or phishing. So that that is the the act of attacking the human side of things. So calling up a bank or calling up a company and saying, "Hi, this is Bill from IT." Uh, we recently changed your pass. We've recently changed the password policy, and we need you to change your password. What is your current password? And and uh, Jill in accounting might be like, ah, my password's elephant three. Uh, I'd like to change it to this. So Bill, who is the uh, malicious malicious person, has, goes into goes into Jill's uh, accountancy um, user account, logs in, and well, you've got an attacker in your system straight away. Yeah, it's interesting, um, uh, you know, lest any of our listeners think they might not be vulnerable to phishing. Um, you know, it only takes one moment, uh, just one moment, one slip, and that's it. And, um, you know... Well, the, the, there's, a, there's actually a really good example of this. That, sorry to cut, cut over you, but okay. in, regards, in regards to phishing, uh, one of my friends, uh, who Pete also knows, a guy called Kev, not going to say his last name, don't want to call him out on it, but uh, there was a Gmail phishing scam about 
two weeks ago or a month ago, which basically said, click on this link, you've got Google Docs to open, mm. and it would it would redirect you to your to to um, kind of single authentication. So it would assume that you're logged into your Gmail account and would use the technology behind that to log you into uh, a malicious uh, Google Docs, but it would send your details off to the attacker. Now, that, that's probably one of the most complex phishing scams that I've ever seen, but it just took simply clicking on that link, not looking at who's it from, but saying, oh, it looks a bit like Google Docs. I've, I've not logged into Google Docs for a while or whatever. Clicking on it and your, your account's compromised, essentially. So it's, it, it, it's a spur-of-the-moment thing. And the, the one thing that phishing plays on is people either not paying attention or it being so convincing that it can't possibly not be legitimate. Well, I think, too, that... Um... Uh, partly what um, it plays on too is that so much of what you might be doing is routine you know like I click on I see a blue link and I click on it um, and if you just if you're just clicking around you know and you're going through trying to get through your emails as quickly as you can you know an email from someone familiar with a link in it you just click on it and you can be just like that moment you're like oh damn it um, yeah but you know it's it's where you know where over time I think people are pretty easy to hack um, if you get enough chances. Yeah, I mean, no, nobody, anyone in the security industry, you're, you're, you're never 100% hack-proof. There's always going to be a moment where you are you don't think you click on something or somebody calls up and you've either, like, there's always going to be smarter individuals than you and you n- never think that you're never going to be hacked because you will. It'll happen. You'll accidentally click on something or somebody will stalk you or somebody will find information about you. It's Nowadays, there's there's no true way to 100% privacy. hate to say it, but privacy is dead. And just being more vigilant about what you click on and being more vigilant about what you do, it will decrease your chance of being compromised, but it will happen. It, it will happen. One um one last question I guess I have on this topic before um, we talk a little bit more uh, specifically about your book. Um, when it comes to privacy, um, you know one of the things one hears about is uh, people starting to use apps like um, I think it's called Signal. Um, yeah. Or um, you know even the uh, BlackBerry um, app uh, for messaging BBM I think. Um, yeah. Are you a believer in those things? Do you think that it's genuinely true that they're encrypted end to end? Yeah, I, I I use Signal, I use uh, Telegram, I use WhatsApp, I use end to end encrypted uh, conversations. But now nowadays, I mean, certainly the UK, the the um, I mean, the UK government is going to change in like a month's time. There is an election, but the 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 current the current government or the previous government, the Conservatives who were in place, were wanting to ban encryption. Because they think, oh, terrorism, encryption, that sort of thing. But using end-to-end encryption is the best thing you can do, regardless if you're talking about ordering your groceries or if you're talking about planning a military operation. Nobody should have the right to see what you're talking about. Nobody should have the right to decrypt your traffic and, and view it because it's it's the only person that should care about what you're talking about is you and the receiver. Regardless if you're a terrorist, regardless if you're speaking to your granny, your conversation should be private. That, that that's my opinion. I mean, terrorism's horrible. It should it shouldn't happen. But the the fact that somebody has, or the fact that an organisation or or individual thinks that they have the right to spy on your conversations, I think that's wrong. And I think using end to end encryption like Signal, using 
Tor, using Telegram, using WhatsApp, just using an end-to-end encrypted uh, application, best thing you can do. Well, and I think the, um, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think the, you know, the argument from the other side is, do you really think that it's going to not someday be helpful to bad actors to uh, have backdoors into everything? Well, there is that as well. I mean, the, the not just bad actors, but government actors. The, the the biggest case probably that a lot of listeners and, and the public will know about is that the NSA were asking Apple to decrypt an iPhone last year, I think it was. And Apple were like, no, we respect our users' privacy. We're not, we're not decrypt this. But also we can't decrypt it because it's unique to the device. And there have been cases in the past where the NSA have approached Samsung. They've approached Apple going, can you build a backdoor in for us, say that this happens? And it's down to the, the, those those companies like Apple and Samsung to go, no, we're keeping our devices secure. We, we respect our users more than we respect the, the national security, as, as the buzzword is chucked about. But the, the malicious actors, they may find zero days in, in those software and they may not tell people about those zero days. And that that's a risk. It's going to happen, but... There, there's no way to prevent it because how are you to know if somebody's got a zero day in this software if they're spying your software if not even the vendor knows um i now have yet one more question before we get directly to your book um so yeah no problem I, I, I love i love talking so this <laughs> this uh this kind of interview will be full of tangents on different topics but i'm happy to talk about them because i enjoy them and it's oh it's, yeah, that's, yeah that's that's great that's great and i'm very happy to hear that um uh I, I lived in the UK for about nine years, um, and just last week I was interviewing someone from London, and I was asking about um, the mood around, um, you know, post Brexit. Um, uh. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, you're in you're in Scotland, um, coming to us from Glasgow, so things are even more complicated in their own way there. Um, but I guess, generally speaking, in the tech sector. Is there any anxiety related to what's going on? I mean, do people feel secure? Do they feel that their, say, their foreign-born colleagues are going to be forced to leave? I mean, is that a real on-the-ground worry that people have? It is a real issue. I mean, the, the, I, I have colleagues who are from India. I have colleagues who are from Brazil, who are from different parts of Europe and Asia. And they work in the UK. They work in the office with me in Glasgow. And... and uh, they have had genuine worries that is Brexit going to affect their employment? And the thing is with the government and people that have voted for Brexit, I, I personally voted to remain in Europe because I believe that the free market should be a thing, but my political views are irrelevant to this conversation. The the, the thing that, that the government overlook is that they go, oh yeah, we're going to cut down immigration, we're going to cut down this, but they don't think about people who are actually in jobs, who are actually doing things, who are actually helping the environment, helping the, the um, economy, they just see it as numbers on a page. They just want to cut down, we want to stop um, X amount of people coming from this country into ours. But it it's all fueled, personally, I think it's all fueled from racism. I think that's what it is, but they're, they're too, they're too uh, cowardly to say that. Obviously, if you say that in, in, in a political stance, it's it's like political suicide, but it's, it's true. It is based upon racism. It's people saying, oh, you're different from me. I don't like you, so get out of my country and it, it's i don't agree with that at all i think it's i think it's a horrible way of doing things and 
it's it's what a lot of people felt when when they decided to to vote to leave the EU that they were lied to. But hey, political agendas. Trump's in power. That happened. Yeah, I actually I actually feel bad that I don't know the answer to this next question already. But um, did a majority of people who voted in Scotland vote to remain? Yes, uh, something like fifty or might yeah, I think it was like fifty five percent voted to remain in the EU because it was one of the terms and conditions within the Scottish independence referendum, which happened in 2014, that Scotland would still have a place in Europe. However, there's now a lot of controversy with the UK government and the Scottish government going, well, you guys said we could stay in Europe, yet you've you've initiated Brexit. We want our second independence referendum. Personally, when I voted first on round for independence in Scotland, I voted yes to, to leave the UK. That was a great idea. But now that Brexit has happened, I think right now probably isn't the best time to go independent. I think if we, if the UK was still part of the EU, then it'd be great. But it's it's uh, now is not the time. Yeah, that's really um, it's really interesting. I mean, these um, these moments of choice, uh, you know, are actually pretty rare where it's so direct. You know, um, at, at a nation nation like at a national level. I mean, you can have local referenda and stuff like that, but, you know, this, you know, it can't be stressed enough how significant uh, the Brexit vote was. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite controversial as well, because the, the really, and the thing that annoyed me and a lot of other people most about the, the Brexit vote is that 90% of the politicians that were campaigning for leaving, so campaigning for Brexit, were straight up lying through their front teeth. So the, the, the biggest piece of controversy was a bus that was paraded around the UK saying we're going to give 350-odd million back to the NHS. And the day after Brexit was what came through as people wanting to leave the UK, that same individual, uh, Nigel Farage, who ran, ran the UKIP, a, a UK party for UK independence, uh, basically went, I didn't say that, didn't say that at all. Yet there was pictures of this bus all over the place. Everyone, everyone felt they'd been lied to. That was just one one aspect of it, but there were there were lots of other aspects. There were, were uh, things that were promised that that w- there was no way they were going to be delivered. There were constituencies that were lied to, saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, th- leaving the U- it's leave- sorry, leaving the EU is a great idea." Uh, and then they're going, "But we're getting X amount a million funding. Can we keep that?" And they're like, "No, you've you've left. You can't have that. You've, you can't have your cake and eat it." So, yeah, and Farage quit. Summarily, yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, this, this, the, the image of Boris Johnson as I think he's foreign (laughs) minister. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I hate to say it, but yeah, (laughs) it's 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 basically the UK's Trump. (laughs) The the way of the way of putting it is Boris Johnson is our foreign secretary, or maybe not for much longer, depending on the outcome of the upcoming election, but. As the foreign secretary for ex- well, almost a year, uh, it's it's like it's like you guys in America having Trump as a well, yeah having Trump as a um, president. <laughs> well, I've actually I actually should qualify. I'm I'm in Canada. Um, uh, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, but we all feel, I mean, very connected, right? Um, and uh, you know, it matters to us up here what's happening down there and what's happening over where you are as well 
um, uh, I guess we'll all have to uh, work hard at what we do and, and uh, stay aware and uh, engaged in, in what's happening. Um, yeah, that, you know, that definitely. You know, if I, I just, you know, I've, I mean, you know, like people who pay attention to such things, I've thought before about what it must be like to be in Scotland back in, was it in 2014 that the independence vote happened? Yeah, 2014. Yeah, and I mean, fourteenth of September, if you want to be exact. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've, I mean, I've got quite a few Scottish friends myself, and I mean, just the the idea of having that choice presented to you is just so stark. Um, maybe coming down from thirty thousand feet um, uh, on the subject of things <laughs> things changing really quickly. Um, uh, so obviously, in your uh, profession, uh, things are changing by their very nature all the time. Um, and yet at the same time, you've written a very useful book. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you intend to be updating the book regularly? Yeah, uh, the, the, the aim, I mean, I, I want to get it printed. I, I, I got, I got five copies printed just to see what it's like, cause it's nice to have a physical copy of the book, but I want to, I want to get it printed for people who like to have physical printed copies, but from an ebook perspective, uh, the aim is to update it as times change, but as we all know, well, maybe maybe not everyone knows, but with security in, in particular, the the landscape is changing, but daily, possibly even hourly. There there are new threats, there are new changes in tooling, there are new changes in vulnerabilities, websites, technology. It's changing all the time. So, with with that rapid change comes the the, the security and the, the kind of education side of things. It needs to keep up. My aim is to keep the book updated to an extent, but the the core topics, I believe, won't change. That there there will still be web application testing. There will still be infrastructure testing. There will still be reporting. There will still be social aspects of things. There will still be programming, and there'll still be like basic networking. But the actual kind of layers on top of that will change, and there will be specific details in the book that may become outdated. And I hope to update them as and when they do change. That's that's the plan anyway. Whether or not that happens in practice will depend on other other factors at work. Yeah, it's um I thought uh the approach that you took um to the book uh seemed very um solid. Um, you know, it starts out with, you know, imagine if you're starting from scratch and it's like what's the internet? Um you know yeah. that, that you know that that's going to remain a useful knowledge that you don't need to update for some time presumably um uh, and there are these foundational things that one can learn um can i ask uh i mean just from a sort of you know in being in the industry uh, what what um service did you use uh for making the print copies for making the print copies uh well uh, there, there's a company in the UK. Well, there's lots of companies in the UK that will print limited runs. So I used like a, a printing company to get uh, five A5 copies uh, printed, but it, pr- it proved pretty expensive. So I've been looking at other uh, potential suppliers because th- there's a conference upcoming in the UK called B Size London, which is happening in like two weeks' time. And uh, one of my friends suggested go and launch your book there. Like we'll we'll make we'll make a big fuss about it and and if you've got physical copies great go for it and initially I was like oh yeah that'd be a good idea and then I was like shit I don't have any printed copies I need to get that done I still need to get that done but uh, I, I'm gonna do that I'm gonna take like fifty copies down with me and even if I sell one I'll be happy because the, the initial aim for me when I was creating my book was was uh, if I sell five copies I'll be happy now I've sold about one hundred and sixty copies which is 
a lot a lot more than I was expecting and yeah it's good <laughs> yeah well congratulations on that by the way um getting getting that many readers is a real accomplishment um and um uh yeah one thing that I should say that I mean you know if if you if you do want to uh print multiple copies of your book that you want to take to conferences and stuff like that there's more efficient ways of doing that than with Lulu and create space but at the same time with services like Lulu and create space you can you know, make your you can make your ebook on LeanPub, and then you can um, make your book available for print on demand uh, through services okay. like that. Um, are, are they uh, worldwide? Are they tied to the uh, U.S. and Canada? Uh, no, they're worldwide. Um, Create Space is through through Amazon. Um, uh, the only the only issue is that for for your like for the general use case of I want to have print books available for people to buy, things like Lulu and Create Space are really good. But if you actually have a specific plan, like I want to print 100 copies and I want to have those that I take with me to conferences, um, I don't. I think there are cheaper options than putting it up on Lulu or CreateSpace and then ordering 100 copies yourself. Right, um, okay. So they're, they're sort of very specific, but we do have a PDF ex, print-ready PDF export option that you can use. Yeah, I saw that. It's, so it's like great. Yeah. I mean, the, the export functionality in LeanPub is uh, fantastic. I mean, the... the, the the ability, I mean, there's, there's lots of great features on the platform, but the, ability, the, the main things I enjoyed when I was writing the book was the, the ability to output a preview PDF as I was writing the book going, right, this works, this doesn't work. But what that led me to do was to chuck the preview PDF at my proofreaders to go like, have, have I, does this sound technically correct or not? And it wasn't the full thing. It was like maybe outputting a couple of chapters at a time as I was writing. But then now that it's published, the export features, I can export it unbranded, I can export it print-ready, I can export the published version, I think I can export it to various other, uh, what's the word I'm thinking, formats as well. It's complete mind-blank. It's it's really useful, and the, the kind of post-publication dashboard is it's great. It's, uh, yeah, well, thanks, it's thanks for the kind words. It's um, rather, I mean, there's always room for improvement, but uh, LeanPub is rather battle-hardened. We... Um, we work closely with and listen uh, attentively to authors, um, especially when they're doing something, you know, that maybe we haven't encountered before. And so it's through their own experience. And that's, I mean, one of the reasons that we can't, we can't entirely take credit for the way things sometimes work very well, because our authors themselves have, you know, done, uh, given us great feedback um, for how uh, things go for them and what they need. Um, on that, on that topic, I guess my last question for you is, if there were any feature we could build for you, uh, do you have any thoughts as to what you might ask for? Uh, possibly. I mean, obviously you've got partners with uh, printed pr- printing, but I think having having the option to sell printed versions of your book through the LeanPub platform, mm-hmm. I think that would be really good because it, what it would mean is that you'd actually have an end-to-end solution that... If if an author uh, publishes a book, they can go. Well, you can you can buy the e ebook and you can pay five dollars for it, or you can pay an extra fifteen dollars and get the printed version, and uh, that that will get sent to your address. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really good uh, suggestion. It is, it's an avenue we've um, thought about, or it's it's an op- it's a possibility we've thought about before. Um, you know, getting from A to Z can be pretty difficult. Um, uh, you know, especially if, I mean, we don't, we don't, you know, have any sort of print partners. I mean, we do provide output that you can use for Lulu and create space and things like that. Um, but 
have you thought about partnering with them? Have you have you floated the idea with them? Uh, it's something we've thought about. Um, uh, it's um, you know the world of um, uh, digital marketplaces and the worlds of digital marketplaces and the, the digital marketplace and the physical marketplace are very different. Um, yeah, and um, you know that's that's something that you know requires some kind of cultural adjustment, perhaps on both sides, if we were to do something like that. Um, so it's, it's, thanks for the suggestion. I mean, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, getting encouraged to do can maybe help push us in a very, in a direction, but, um, you know, we are, uh, we're not the biggest company in the world and, um, you know, there's always other things to do, but yeah, thanks for that suggestion. It's definitely something that, um, people have asked for before. There is one other suggestion that, that springs to mind. I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong; it might already be there. I mean, the, there is the testimonials aspect of of your of your book of of when an author publishes a book, they they can enter testimonials from readers. But as far as I can see, there's not a, a place that a reader can click on and go, "I want to review this book." Uh, yeah. Um, so this is actually something. Uh, funnily enough, I was just answering a question about um, earlier today. Uh, but we don't have a reviews option on LeanPub. Um, it's something that people do naturally enough um, ask for or suggest or even expect um, sometimes. Um, with us, it's a little... LeanPub, because of our emphasis on in-progress publishing and because we make it so easy to update books, the re reviews are themselves pose a potential problem. Um, you know, because what if someone puts up a review saying, you know, chapter two sucks, um, <laughs> and then the author sees that and then improves chapter two, what do you do with that review? Well, what, what you could do, I mean, it's a suggestion. Um, I've noticed that more and more recently on the Google Play store. So like on Android, if, if an application is reviewed, uh, that, that say, I don't want to take Twitter, for example. Say the Twitter application is uh, reviewed and then Twitter see that if there's a flaw there, so they go, and, they go and release a new version. What the review will say is this review was left for this version. This was X months before the latest version was patched. Now, doing that programmatically wouldn't be too difficult because all you would need to do would be to look at the revision history on a, on a book and say, well, this, this, was, this is a review of this version. The current version is X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, that's a, no, that's a good suggestion. I mean, I think I think actually what the app, as I understand it, what the app store does is just deletes when you when you publish a new version of your app, they just delete all the old reviews, um, which is <laughs> a kind of like much less sophisticated than what you're describing. But one of the interesting issues is that um, just before we go, is that uh, regardless of how well things are spelled out you know, the, the average person coming to it isn't necessarily going to bring, you know, their full game to understanding what they're encountering. And if they just yeah. see something negative, well, they see something negative. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the challenge around reviews, but I mean, it's not something that I don't, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of my colleagues, but I don't think it's something we've, you know, decided we're never going to do. Uh, but if we ever do do it, um, we're going to, you know, do something, uh, well thought through, uh, like, you know, per, like uh, possibly along the lines of what you suggested, where it's, you know, reviews are tied to timing uh, yeah. and releases and things like that, just to make it as clear as possible, you know, at what point 
these comments were made or this review was made in the book's genesis and perhaps even things that have changed since it was written. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Andy, uh, thanks very much for those suggestions um, and uh, for uh, using LeanPub and um, for taking the time to do this interview, which I very much enjoyed. I, I like talking to um, and uh, when you encounter someone else who does, it's always uh, great fun. Yeah, it was it was uh, really interesting. It, as as I said, my email was a bit bit, uh, bit delayed because I had some email issues, but I sorted them out uh, fairly quickly. So all, all good with that. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks thanks for featuring my book. It's it's doing well. Oh no problem. <laughs>